Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves in violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance, they say. How, could, how would God know? How does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and might have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and arrogant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Faith. Good morning, everyone. My name's Evan. Um, if you're new, welcome. My wife Sandy and I have the joy of leading this church. We are in a series called Teach Us to Pray. Nine weeks in the book of Psalms. This book shaped Jesus's prayer life. We want it to shape ours because we follow Jesus. And today we are talking about how to pray through doubt and a similar experience that's come to be known as deconstruction. Uh, we're going to use those words kind of interchangeably today, doubt and deconstruction. That's what Psalm 73 is all about, really. Uh, by the way, how is the 60-day challenge going for you guys? Yeah, we're praying. Our church is praying through the whole book of Psalms in 60 days together. The reading plan is on our website. We're hearing stories from so many of you how life-giving this is. Because as we read, we're finding out we are not the only generation to experience a crisis, right? I mean, the Psalms remind us how deep and rich our family history is. So join us, please, for the rest of the challenge. We're halfway through this week. We're in the 70s. Um, this week is the halfway point, and we hit Psalm 73. This Psalm, we hit it on Tuesday. And we're going to talk about it today, all about how to pray through your doubts, so this month, uh, Sandy and I turned 40, yeah, so uh, together, which means we've been in church leadership for like 22 years, leading youth and musicians and creatives and adults and everything in between. And in all those spaces, we've had a front row seat to watching people grow in faith. And we've also watched plenty of people deal with their doubt and deconstruct. So we often doubt our faith for 
many reasons. We start to see that the church is imperfect, right? Or we see injustices in the church. We see heroes of faith that aren't everything we thought they were. And some of us were even hurt by church and church leaders. And for others, some doubt because it really is an intellectual issue, a belief issue. We have a hard time believing Jesus is who he says he is or the Bible is trustworthy. There's a host of reasons why we walk through doubt. But what I want to do today, okay, is invite you to see your honest doubt as an optimal space for encountering God. What if doubt is part of the prayer? What if doubt is part of the praise? This is the invitation of Psalm 73. This psalmist, his name is Asaph, Uh, He's doubting and he's picking apart his reality and he's very troubled. And what we see him do, we see him hold two things in tension. On one hand, he doesn't stuff it. He doesn't pretend like everything is okay out there while quietly falling apart in here. No, he names his doubts. He verbalizes them and openly, humbly airs them before God and his community. He doesn't stuff them. In some conservative church circles, it's more common to see this, right? Where certain questions feel off limits or doubting is demonized. And the result is people tend to feel that they have to stuff their doubts. And the psalmist doesn't do that. So that's one hand. On the other hand, he does not let his doubts take over everything either. His doubts don't shape his life. He realizes that's a dead end, a spiral that never ends. And this one is more common today in progressive Christianity, progressive Christian circles. It's often called deconstruction, where doubting is almost this badge of honor. Like it's a requirement to be seen as good and brave and virtuous. You have to doubt. And it's often a reaction to bad stuff that you've seen in the world, right? And and it's almost a, a virtue to shape our lives and our relationship with God in terms of deconstruction and doubt. But the psalmist chooses not to let his relationship with God be shaped primarily as a reaction to the bad stuff he's seen, right? We've all seen bad stuff. The psalmist is not shaping himself as a reaction to that. Instead, he's, he's holding them in tension, which brings him to this third way where he's forced to be fully honest with himself, with God, with the world. And he's like, I can't stuff my doubts. I won't let them drive me. Instead, I recognize the only path to maturity is to see my doubt as a legitimate space to encounter God so I will pray through them, not escape them or live by them. I'll pray through them. This is the invitation of Psalm 73 and many other Psalms. So as long as we have brains and we follow Jesus in a world of pain, we will have doubt and questions, painful ones. And so the invitation today is to step into this place of maturity where we're able to tell the difference between healthy and unhealthy doubt. That's the invitation. So we're going to walk through this psalm now. It's written by this ancient musician, angsty, dark, creative type, you know, musicians. Uh, His name is Asaph. It's this spiritual intellectual crisis where he looks out at the world and how bad it is and he just doubts God, okay? So the first thing I want us to notice as we read this, Psalm 73, when we read this, we are reading the Bible, (laughs) which is crazy. Listen, this is a Tim Mackey line, and it's brilliant. 
As we read this, we are reading people's words doubting God, and they become God's words for doubting people. It's it's the mystery of the scriptures. Think about that. The Bible hands you a resource for doubting. It's like you're going to doubt, normal part of human behavior. Here's a resource for it. Doubt well. Doubt clean. Don't doubt dirty. (laughs) Doubt clean for being honest with ourselves. This is incredible. The scriptures acknowledge that this whole Jesus thing is kind of weird to believe. The pain of life can be hard to fit with the goodness of God. And the scriptures give us language for that tension. And the scriptures say that's actually a healthy part of our prayer time. It's profound, you guys. Okay, verse one, ready? Psalm 73, verse one. Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. So there's the starting line. God is good, right? That's been a core confession of God's people for millennia. Uh, Because God has always acted faithfully. He's never lied. His character is trustworthy. And God's people have always confessed that God's goodness is the bedrock. It's the concrete slab under the whole house. So when we confess that, God is good. We're admitting that's the only starting line there is. That's the only starting place we have. Without that, we have nothing else. The psalmist acknowledges this. He has to be honest about this. He confesses, and I don't know if there's like reluctance or passion or disillusionment or sarcasm, but he's like, surely God is good to Israel. And I have to point out right away, what does the word Israel mean? Do you know? Israel, it means wrestles with God. That's literally what Israel means. It's that picture. So right now, surely God is good to Israel. It's like, he, there's the tension. God is good, and yet there's the wrestling. Both together is the maturity we're all invited into in a world that's complex and messy. So let me ask you, does it feel like you're wrestling with God right now? Do you feel that tension? Like, how does this square with who God says he is? Do you feel that wrestling? If so, sounds like you're a person of God. Israel means those who wrestle with God. And so from that place, the psalmist now, he starts processing what's going on. Verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's a big deal right now. After he confesses what he's supposed to say, like a good God person, (laughs) surely God is good. He immediately turns around and says, but I'm not, I don't think I buy it anymore. This is emotional maturity right now. He both doubts and confesses God's goodness at the same time. That is maturity. It's hard to hold those complex things in tension. But he realizes without God's goodness, what is the point of anything, right? And from there, he begins to process his mixed feelings and his questions. And he uses this brilliant metaphor uh, for the spiritual journey. He says, my feet almost slipped and I almost lost my foothold, right? What do you picture when you see that? Picture losing a foothold, Is that how you describe just like slipping in the bathroom or like walking down the street or tripping on a Lego? No, this is like 
It's a hike up a steep mountain. Following God is not a walk in the park. It's a hike uphill for life. There are footholds. And you have to intentionally find something solid to stand on. So he describes following Jesus, following God as a difficult journey, not a walk in the park. And in in many ways through this psalm, Asaph is saying, hey, when I saw the wicked and when I look at injustice and all the abuse that's in the world, I just feel like I'm going crazy. I feel like I'm losing my grip on reality. I'm slipping off the rock. I, I don't quite slip, but I almost do. This is the image of doubting that Psalm 73 gives us. It's climbing a mountain and almost slipping. It's amazing. So uh, my wife and I have suddenly taken up hiking out of nowhere, it seems. Maybe it's turning 40, midlife crisis. I don't know. But uh, never waste a midlife crisis, I say. So, so we, hit, we hit mission trails or Iron Mountain a couple times a week now. And... We're realizing, by the way, our staff is taking on the Five Peak Challenge in a couple weeks, which is fun. All five peaks of Mission Trails Regional Park. It'll be a legendary day with many amazing Instagram stories, I'm sure. Hilarious. So as we're getting into hiking, we're realizing one of the things we have to do, if you're into hiking, you know this, you have to make a plan. You can't wing it, Uh, especially when you get into crazier hikes. You have to account for sun and elevation gain, and water, and your energy level, sleep you have, especially when you get into longer hikes, you start thinking about like backpack size and tent weight, and it just goes on. Um, And the psalmist is saying, this is what life is like navigating reality with God. It's a lifelong hike uphill, and you plan, and you bring your friends, and you make your plans, and there's plenty of moments where things, stuff just happens, Stuff happens, and you don't see it coming. You could not have got ready for it. A rock moved when you stepped on it. A handhold gave way when you were counting on it, and now you're all disoriented and willy-nilly, and that was not part of the plan. And you break your arm or you lose your balance. Something happens you didn't have a bucket for. You didn't have a category for what just happened. And now you're dizzy. This is what the psalmist is saying is the image of doubt. Are you guys with me on that? Do you feel that? Some of us are planners more than others, but we all have our expectations out of life. And we have our way of seeing the world. Maybe Jesus in church is a big deal for you. And that's part of your, that's like right in the center of your plan. Maybe you're here and you're kind of like, I kind of want Jesus to take over my whole life. I just don't know what it'll look like right now. Wherever we're at, we have our life experiences and then things just happen. They blow up and they wreck our buckets. We don't have somewhere to put it. And we're like, well, if if Jesus is really good, where did that come from? Can can we resonate with this? And then our well-planned hiking trip is just shot. For, <laughs> we went camping. I didn't even think of this until right now. We went camping two days for the last two days. We got back yesterday morning uh, out by Julian somewhere. And we got our tent and we got everything. And for the first time, we felt super ready. And I just didn't, I just to, I, I told Sandy that I put all the sleeping bags in the car because I thought I did. <laughs> and we get to this 45 degree night. It was so cold. And three of my kids don't have sleeping bags. Uh, and I feel like a failure. And, um, 
I just didn't, I didn't plan to forget that. And I'm kind of super at fault for that. I didn't know what to do. Thankfully, it just so happened my parents were on the same campsite that night out of nowhere. They don't even camp that often, and they happened to be there. They gave us all their blankets. But um, like that's the picture of doubt. You open the car, and you thought it was going to be another, and you don't have what you need in order to live and be okay. <laughs> this is the picture of doubt in Psalm 73. What caused it for this guy? What caused it? Look at verse 3. He's like, I envied the arrogant. Why? Because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. It says prosperity. You know what the Hebrew word for prosperity is right there? It's probably the one Hebrew word we all know. What do you think it is? Shalom. Shalom. He's like, I saw the shalom of the evil. That's harmony, wholeness, abundance, wealth, like peace. Wait a minute. I thought shalom was something God gives people. Why would the wicked have it? And I'm a God person, and I don't. Exactly. You're now feeling the tension. You feel the, you're supposed to feel that. This is what the psalm is wanting you to feel through prayer and give you language for this. We call this doubt. The psalmist calls this, I'm slipping off the mountain, God. Right? This is the feeling. And then verse 4 through 12, we're not going to read it. We already did. They go on to describe in detail the shocking reality. The violent, abusive narcissists are being blessed (laughs) and prospering. And they're doing whatever the heck they want. And what they get in return is the good life. They're getting shalom. And the psalmist is like, I see this and it's messing me up. And not only that, look at verse 13. He gets really, really raw here. He's like, okay, God, I thought you, I thought you only give your shalom to the pure in heart. He's verse 13. He says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. In fact, verse 14, all day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings me new punishments. It's not the way it's supposed to be right now. And we don't know his story. We don't know if his friends betrayed him or if someone kidnapped his family or if his, if his harvest failed or if an ox gored one of his goats. We don't know what's going on in this, but he's experiencing serious loss and grief. And we don't know the story, but we know the feeling. He's like, this does not square with what I say I believe about God's goodness. So he's like, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't think it's worth it anymore. If, if I want shalom, why don't I just go be like them? They get to do whatever the heck they want, and they get shalom. Do you resonate with this feeling? I want us to feel this. Notice, notice what's happening. Asaph's doubt is not caused by some brilliant intellectual argument. It's not some new argument from secularism or something. For sure, he's wrestling it out in his head, but it didn't start in his head. It started with an experience that he lived through, and he didn't have a bucket for it. And because he's dizzy, falling off the handhold, he lost his foothold, uh, his previous view of God isn't working for him anymore. And remember, this is a prayer in the Bible 
This is a crisis of doubt as worship. It's a biblical prayer. So let me ask you, have you thought about it this way? If having a crisis of doubt was a sin, would it be a prayer for us to pray in the Bible? No. This is the tension of spiritual maturity, you guys. Praying with both hands together. Surely God is good, and I I don't get this. Both together. The people who can pray like that are the kind of people we believe. They're the kind of people we want to become. Two weeks ago, I spent a few days with some pastor friends of mine. We get away once a year, and this year we invited an older, wiser pastor to speak into our conversations. And listen, I can't, without giving the details of his struggle, this man and his family are currently walking through one of the most unexpected, difficult situations imaginable. And he was sharing with us about what God was teaching him through this crisis. And as he's talking, I just got this overwhelming sense, this man is the kind of person I want to become. He's not just checking his brain at the door and saying, oh, well, I just stopped doubting. Just believe. Just got to believe. No, he's saying, surely God is good. I don't get this. I may never get this until God raises me from the dead. Surely God is good. And, and he's praying through doubt. I know that's still a little abstract. I'm going to give you four practical moves we can make in our spiritual life to pray through doubt at the end of this. But this tells us, you guys, a crisis of doubt is not a failure. It's not a moment of failure. A crisis of doubt is an opportunity for serious growth where God is able to grow your ability to see and experience him in richer ways. So if you're here and you're at all disoriented in your faith and you have deep questions about the faith. You have more questions than you know what to do with. And maybe the old ways of reading the Bible five years ago aren't working for you anymore. It could be the case that you're not actually losing your faith, but you're actually growing. And now your faith needs to catch up with your growth as a human. And you need, so, which means you need to learn some new ideas now. And you need to learn to read the Bible in a more informed, responsible way. And you need to be more intentional about your spiritual disciplines. You can't just wing it, right? You can't wing it anymore. Because you're not as immature as you were. You're more mature now, and God has a deeper spiritual life for you to live in his Holy Spirit. This is growing in faith. If faith means anything, it's faithfulness through the changes, not faithfulness through the staying the same. And this is exactly what happens in the psalm. He prays through his doubt in a specific way. So how? How does he do this? How does he move through doubt? Here's at least four moves he makes, and then we'll come to the table. Four things that I found very helpful for me in reading through this psalm. Uh, Very practical, actually. So the first one is back in verse 3. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 73. The first one is when he says, I envied the arrogant. What is that? So step one, praying through doubt, doubting clean rather than doubting dirty. Step one, he deconstructs his own doubt. 
He deconstructs his own doubt. How? Well, he's honest if he has mixed motives. He's like, I am actually envious of the wicked. Right? This is a confession. He critiques his own critical outlook. He's like, yeah, those people are unjust. Those people are evil. But if I'm honest, I'm reacting out of envy toward them. This is so important, you guys. (laughs) If we're going to doubt clean, we have to be very honest about the real core motives in our heart. Asaph's like, I hate oppression. I hate violence. It bums me out when the violent win. But he's like, is that really what's motivating me right now, if I'm honest? No. He'd love to say it is, like maybe in a debate or a podcast debate with someone, maybe he would say, yes, I'm angry at the injustice in the world. But his, what's his real issue? He's jealous. He's jealous. That's what actually is fueling this crisis of doubt for him. It's envy. And what is envy? Jesus talks about it a lot. It's, it's this, I should be getting something. It's not happening for me. I'm frustrated. Boom, that's envy. Or entitlement, right? So question is, is Asaph's deconstruction journey, is it purely intellectual? No, yeah. I see some head shaking. No, it's not. He, he sees abusers getting wealthier. And what he expresses on the outside, I doubt God, but what's actually going on inside, I'm jealous. And this is his first step toward growth, is admitting this. The first step toward growth is not getting all my angsty questions answered. His first step is being honest, truly honest about my core motivations. And for him, man, the bad guys are winning and I'm living for Jesus and I'm not. And I'm envious about that. And listen, don't hear me wrong. My point is that, listen, Not everyone who's doubting is like jealous of someone. I'm not making that accusation at all. The point is, all of us are invited to do some raw heart surgery right now and invite the Holy Spirit to shine his light on our core motives and say, what am I really after? What do I really want? God, show me what I really want. Sometimes I don't even know. I'm saying that I'm deconstructing and doubting and all of that. And I'm questioning doctrine and I'm questioning the virgin birth and the authority of the Bible. And I'm wrestling along with deconstruction podcasts. I'm super into all these things. But is it possible in any way that something else is the real, is the real issue? And all that other stuff is just a smokescreen. Is that, is that possible? For me, that was the case. So it's just being transparent with you. Part of my deconstruction journey, when I went to seminary and started my theology degree eight years ago, I'll be honest, it was more about, for me, it was more about dismantling my past church experiences and less about preparing for my future in God's kingdom. At the beginning, 100%. I, I, <laughs> I would be in class and I'd just throw up smoke screens. And I knew it. I would ask questions just to get little fire started in the room. 
just to get debates going and to get my professor talking about the things that were most troubling to me and things I've heard on podcasts. And in order to mature, in order for me to mature, I had to actually invite older, wiser voices to speak directly to my core. And it turns out I was jealous. Evan was jealous that other people who I disagreed with out there were gaining way more influence than I was. And it took me inviting those wiser people into my life and and saying, okay, what do you see in me? What's in me that that doesn't look right? I need you to tell me. I need more self-awareness. Help. And they told me, like, sometimes in front of fellow students, they would tell me. (laughs) I remember Dr. Gary Bashir's is one of those voices in my life. I remember interrupting his class one too many times, like, all right, are you ready to deal with, like, are are you done with your past, like, daddy issues? You ready to, like, serve Jesus and, and get equipped for the future of the church instead of bummed about the past? Are you stoked? Are you in? I just kind of had to just shut my mouth, be still, and realize what I was actually doing. Smoke screens to get my own attention off what was actually going on inside of me. Jealousy for me. And I had to repent. And right now I realize this might be triggering to some of you, and I get it 100%. Because not everyone is dealing with the same stuff when we're asking honest questions. Don't, I don't want to put my story on everybody. Uh, but the reality is, if we're honest about wrestling through doubt, if we really want to doubt clean, we have to be skeptical of our skepticism and, and ask, what's really going on inside me? Step one. Otherwise, it's just a spiral. And then number two, so that's movement one. Here's here's movement two, how to pray through doubt. It's this. Asaph, this psalmist, he brings his crisis into God's presence. Look at verse 17. He says, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood there, the wicked, I understood their destiny. You see what happened there? This would be the temple in that day. He says, I entered the temple and I began to see clearly. The temple in that day, this would be the church gathering today where word and learning and song and prayer and and poems and art and food would be cooking. The, The life of the people of God would be engaging one another and active. The psalmist brings all his doubts into that space and he immerses himself in the practices of faith and worship and prayer and learning. And somehow in that immersed space, he hits a breakthrough. There's a turning point where he sees how he is growing. He sees how what's happening to him is actually for a growth. It's the community faith experience. And you guys, listen, when you think about it, this makes sense. This makes sense. If you're in a real intellectual crisis of faith, if you're actually wrestling through deep questions, you by yourself are not going to think your way out of it. You can't. You can't think your way out of a genuine crisis of faith. Why? Because the Christian faith is all about a relationship with a person, right? So of course I can't think my way out of a relationship crisis. I mean, do you think I could think my way out of an argument with my wife, like by myself? Like just think, 
what she would say, what I would say. And I'm good now. I have all the answers. We're good. We're good. Don't worry. We don't need to talk anymore. Like, no, I, I can try to think my way out of a fight with Sandy all day long, but it's, nothing's going to work other than a conversation <laughs> where we hash it out and talk all the way through the night if it takes that, right? It's the same experience when we have a crisis with God. The only way forward is to engage, right? So the only way forward is to, is to engage. I remember sitting... Uh, with a bunch of other folks at a retreat and the retreat discussion leader, he goes, are you guys attackers or turtlers? <laughs> do, you, do you attack or do you turtle when you're in conflict? I'm like, oh, I totally turtle. I'm just like, I've, I'm sorry. I just go to sorry and I like, don't even want to deal with that. I'm sorry. I did everything wrong. I'm so wrong. I'm the worst. I'm the one that's a problem. I'm sorry. You're right. And it's like, just escape the actual issue. Um, my wife is attack. It, and if, if, if it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for her, we just would not resolve anything. Um, I would escape, she engages. And, and escaping is a horrible way to fix stuff. The only way forward is to engage with God in a community of worship that believes for each other, right? Not just a list of doctrines. It's not about agreeing with doctrines. It's about trusting a person. That's what the doctrines are for. This is what it means to enter the sanctuary of God. This is how we pray through our doubts. We can't do it alone. We do it in community. I mean, I just, again, that picture, when my wife is engaging in an argument with me and I'm escaping, if I actually say, nope, I figured it out. I already know what you think. <laughs> I already know, I know what I think. I know what you're going to say 10 minutes from now. Uh, and we're good. That is, don't even need to say what will happen if I do that. I do try that sometimes in my escapism, and it works 0% of the time. Nothing replaces engaging with Sandy. In the same way, nothing, when you are having an issue with God, nothing will replace actually engaging God, being in community with the people of God, learning how to read the scriptures more responsibly, and questioning your motives and humbly submitting to the Spirit's voice. So maybe you are more of a reader, bookworm, intellectual person, and you have real questions. Then listen, get with the scientists and intellectual folks who love Jesus in the community. Get with them. I guarantee you aren't the first person to come up with your question. I mean, this psalm is 3,000 years old. It's got some pretty darn good questions still in it that I don't know the full end of. Or maybe you're more emotive. You're more of an emotive person. And maybe song and prayer and solitude is what you need. Or maybe you're more relational. Maybe close, safe community is where you'll be able to work through your growing pains. Right? You see my point? You guys understand where I'm coming from? Wherever you are, the temple has something for you. <laughs> we need to enter the temple this is the only place we get what we need. Maybe, maybe last comment on this. Maybe you're like, I have these intellectual problems with the church, with Christianity. I just have these issues with the atonement. How could God send a son to die? Why did he need to kill something in order to forgive? Or what, what about the Bible? How is this actually authoritative? Wasn't it compiled over many years after? And you have all of these legit questions. I, I would ask you, what books are you reading? Like, who are you processing that with? 
Are you honestly seeking that out? There's freebiblicaltraining.org that's, that's so trustworthy by the top scholars of the day. Are you, where are you going? Are you like, ah, I'm, not, I'm not really, I kind of just listened to some angsty ex-Christian deconstruction podcasts that really resonate with me right now. Then I'm like, with all love and respect, I'm like, duh. Like, totally, there you go. Like, seriously, there's so many healthy, cleaned out ways to enter the temple and to immerse yourself in the life of God's people. This is the invitation of this psalm. And then here's movement three. Ready? We're coming to the end. Movement three. After he doubts his doubts, enters the temple. Movement three. The psalmist compares worldviews. He learns to compare what he calls footholds, right? My foot nearly slipped. He compares footholds. Look at verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. Talking about the wicked. He's like, oh my gosh, how suddenly are they destroyed? Completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. You see that line? He says, surely you place them on slippery ground. He's coming full circle. Remember, what was his problem at the beginning? He's like, my foot almost slipped. But now after being in the temple, he's like, oh, they're actually the slippery ones. <laughs> they're, one, they're the ones who are losing their footing. The ones who reject God have it way worse off than the most suffering saint. The psalmist is learning to compare worldviews, to compare footholds. This is something, you guys, we have to do this. We have to. If we're going to live and follow Jesus in an increasingly secular Western city like San Diego, where most people in San Diego do not share your opinion about how to behave with your body as a follower of Jesus, um, we're going to need to learn especially as information ramps up and as we're, this, this is the tip of the iceberg as far as a digital society. The internet just started. It just started. The 90s is like a blip ago. Who knows what will be 50 years from now? We have to learn to compare worldviews. What this means, you guys, right now in our current secular culture, maybe you see this on your college campus or your workplace there's this idea that you have to choose between belief and unbelief, right? There's this idea. Are you a believer? Or are you an unbeliever? And, and, and they're like, do you believe in God or are you science-y or whatever? There's this choice. It's a parent choice. But the choice is never between belief and unbelief. That's not a thing. In reality, the choice is always between belief and belief, Right? It's a choice between belief in what Jesus claims through eyewitnesses or belief in some other claims. Everyone believes. Everyone chooses their foothold. The question is which foothold is most trustworthy, right? For example, think about the psalmist's problem. He's angry about what? He says he's angry about all the evil out there. There's so much evil and bad guys, and they're getting away with it. This is often called in philosophy, the problem of evil or theodicy, right? And it goes like this. If God is good, how could he let there be so much evil in the world? Therefore, there must be no God or at least no good God. That's the problem of evil. Feels like a big problem. It has for many. A lot of people have slipped. They've, they've lost their footing over that, unfortunately. They're like, no, the problem of evil is just too big and they bail. 
But did you know there's an even bigger problem for philosophers? When you get up into the high levels of philosophy, um, Alvin Plantinga, one of the most respected philosophers alive, he points to evil as evidence for God. He says this way, how can there be such a thing as evil and wickedness if God doesn't exist? I don't see how. In an atheistic view of the world, the strong eating the weak is completely natural, and you have no foundation for saying it's wrong or evil. Therefore, if you think that there really is such a thing as good and evil that's not just an illusion, then you have a very powerful reason for believing in God. And see, he's comparing footholds there. One foothold says, there's so much evil, there must be no good God. The other foothold's like, actually, how do you even have the moral well to draw from to claim that there is right or wrong in the first place if naturalism is the only truth? So, so we have to learn how to do this. We have to learn how to compare footholds. When I come across doubts, and I, I hear solid critiques from people that are way smarter than me and read way, way more books, guess what? Guess what that means? Hey, I get to use my brain too. You, we get to use our brains too. I can run that argument by Matthew Ruffet, our elder scientist guy. I can run it by a theologian. I can, in the community, there is a wealth to draw from. So we have to know how to do this, how to compare footholds. If we're going to grow the, as a family of Jesus in San Diego till the year 2050 and beyond. And finally, number four. Number four. This is the last one. If we're going to move through doubt, doubt clean, doubt healthy, we have to ultimately look, number four, look for God's presence in God's absence. Look at verse 21. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast. Brute beast. This is a low point. He hits rock bottom here. What does he do? He recognizes the foundation he started from. The only good thing he has left is God's presence. Look at verse 23. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This final movement is beautiful. Remember, he starts by saying, surely God is good to me. And he shifts to, it is good for me to be near to God. Both. It's not just, why aren't I seeing your goodness <laughs> instead of that? It's also, this is maturity, it's also, it is good, essential for me to be near to you, God. It's as if this experience of doubt was the best thing that could have happened to him. Because now he can see that even if his heart gives out, literally, God is the strength of his heart. <laughs> he realizes if everything falls apart, God will raise me from the dead 
And that's the realest thing that there is. So as we come to the table now, we're going to come to the same place that we find strength and the presence of God every single week. We're going to come to the sanctuary, eat and drink of Jesus himself. And, rem- and remember, remember this fourth point. What is it? It's look for God's presence in his absence. Who did that the best in the worst moment of human history? We have Jesus, right? In Gethsemane. This is what Jesus does. Jesus, the night before he's crucified, experiences God-forsakenness, right? Jesus is no stranger to doubt. Jesus points the way to doubting clean. Father, is this the way? His whole life had built up to this moment. He'd been preaching the kingdom. He'd been faithful to the Father. He only does what the Father says, and he only, (laughs) he's so in tune. And yet in this moment, he's like, if there's any other way, I'll take that. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. That's the emotional maturity that we're invited into. So if you're experiencing God-forsakenness, just know in that moment that Jesus experienced God-forsakenness, he was actually becoming God with us in the absence of God. So that the God who's most present, when we feel he's most absent, we can have confidence in that God. This is reality, according to Jesus and the Psalms. Like the psalmist says, when my heart is grieved, when my spirit is bitter, when I feel like a a wild animal, like no, no value, that's when I can know that Jesus was there first. I'm not alone in that. The real danger is me choosing to move away from God when I need him most. God is very present. So I'll live, I will live near God. I will engage. It's, it's God is good. I don't get it. I may never. So, so I'll doubt my doubts, question my core. I'll enter the sanctuary and engage. I'll compare worldviews and I'll look for God's presence in his felt absence. Because if God's not good, we have nothing. So if you're having that crisis, if this resonates with you, just know there is a resource here at this table. Jesus in his moment, in his night, the night he was betrayed, in his night of greatest crisis, he took the bread and he took the cup and he offers himself to us, which tells us that the most doubtful of us are welcome here. There's so many of you I don't know personally, and I hope this didn't come across as just know-it-all or arrogant. That's the last thing I hope to communicate because these are very real, uh, very real experiences and crises that we go through. And the point is, the temple has space for all of it. The presence of God welcomes all of it. And so come in whatever state you are, trusting that he is present to you when you don't feel it. So Holy Spirit, would you come 
Even in the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. We trust you there. And we thank you that you went there before we did. So my goodness, we're in good company. We always are as we pray the Psalms because Jesus prayed them. So during this moment, as we come, would you speak through your people? This is my body. This is my blood. This is for you. May we rest there, never leave. So yeah, during this song, right away, we're gonna come, we're gonna come to the place Jesus invites us, and that's to eat and drink with him. So wherever you're at, come and enjoy his meal that he has prepared out of his crisis for us. Yeah, so Ali's gonna lead us. Just come forward during this song right now and then bring the cup back to your seat, hold on to it, and we'll all eat and drink after this song.